that's how this virus works. So it's not like you make a change and you see an immediate public health effect, either positive or negative. There's always a delay. And that, that's what makes it hard. And that's why you need roadmaps to follow. And, and we're just not getting that. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. First, a programming note. Hopefully short term, we've changed the show's production schedule. Episodes will be shorter with no set release day, and because of circumstances, interviews will be conducted by phone. We'll do our best to make up for the quality of the audio with the quality of the guests. I'm Andy Langer. Dr. Peter J. Hotez is our guest, our first ever three-time guest. He's the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. The doctor is also a professor at Baylor College of Medicine and an endowed chair in tropical pediatrics at Texas Children's Hospital. As one of the biggest names in vaccine research and development and the leader of a team working on a COVID-19 vaccine, he's been a regular on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. You might recognize the bow tie. And on those shows, he's offered his views on the typical production cycle of vaccines, testing shortages, and the oddly limited role of the CDC. On our show in April, he outlined why he believes banking on miracle cures and treatments, including a vaccine, could become mortally dangerous. Over the course of the last few weeks, as our numbers in Texas have spiked, he's hardened his stances and become more confident about voicing his disappointment in the federal government's handling of the pandemic. Thursday morning by phone, we discussed why he believes there's so little time left to act, what going back to school could actually mean, how Texas bungled our reopening, and what data, what parts of the dashboards that have become part of our daily lives we should really be focusing on. This is Dr. Peter J. Hotez. Welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> so when we last spoke in April, things looked bad. They weren't great. We were starting to talk, though, about reopening. And now we're here. And you're ending tweets with WTF. <laughs> Your frustration is palpable at this point. Yeah, definitely frustrated, um, but not so much at the leadership of Texas. My real frustration is to the federal government. I feel the governors in many, across the southern states were set up to fail, that we, the federal government never provided clear-cut directives about how to uh, prevent this massive resurgence that we now have with COVID-19. It turns out uh, we're only now realizing there never really was a national strategy. It was let the states figure it out, and and the federal government will work to provide backup uh, FEMA support, uh, ventilator manufacturer, PPE. But uh, this was an example of uh, total collapse of, of leadership at the federal level. The task force, though, did offer recommendations for reopening that were ignored by every state virtually, including Texas. What did Abbott do right and wrong? Well, they didn't really provide what, what they did, what the federal government did was was to fall far short of what needed to be done. What they needed to do that they didn't do was provide clear-cut epidemiologic models on where each of the states was headed, number one. Second, they, they failed to provide clear 
information about what would happen if the states did nothing, if the states opened prematurely, uh, and if the states did this measure or that measure, they, they failed to then actually tell the states, this is what you need to do to save lives. And the reason they needed to do that was they were tone deaf to the fact that all of these governors, not just the Texas governor, all of the governors are buffeted by forces to the left and right. And the governors needed the cover from the federal government to say, hey, guys, uh, look, I hear what you're saying, but the CDC and the federal government is telling me if I don't do X, Y, and Z, this many lives are going to be lost. And that would have given a lot the governors a lot of cover to do what needed to be done. And so I... I place the blame squarely in the hands of, of, of U.S. government and CDC for not, for, for not being so uh, proactive in, out there in the lead. You're suggesting now that there's time for a summer national strategy that would return us to something close to containment by fall, but given the way things have rolled out from the federal level at this point, how realistic is that? Well, that's the problem, right? So, so let's, let's clarify. Yes, I, that's what needs to be done now. We need a national federal strategy that would bring all of the states, all 50 states, to more or less the same low level uh, across the board, uh, and whether that's the true containment status, meaning one new case per million residents per day, or or something not quite there but something close, you know that that, that could be discussed. And in that way, we can now start uh, opening up our schools safely. Uh, we can uh, open up our colleges and universities. Who knows? We could even potentially have. Uh, national sporting events. Maybe we can get college football uh, back, back online. Uh, and and what's required for each state is going to be different to get to that goal. So there are some states that may already be there. Uh, other states like Texas and Florida and and uh, and, and Arizona, they're going to require probably more aggressive measures than what we're currently doing. And and you, you do it with the promise that we can ensure that kids can go back to school safely, the kids can get, we can get the colleges and the universities back online, businesses can operate. We can get to a functional level as is currently being done now in Canada or uh, in, in many European countries. Uh, but, you know, this kind of death, death by a thousand cuts doing it piecemeal uh, is just going to ensure uh, that failure after failure occurs. I mean, right now, for instance, you know, we want to open up uh, the, the 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 public school system in Houston and San Antonio and and uh, in Dallas. How do you do that in the middle of a raging COVID nineteen epidemic? What's you know, a week, two weeks after you open the schools, some kids are going to get sick. What do you do then? And then some teachers are going to get sick and parents are going to get sick. And I, I believe that all it takes is one or two or three uh, teachers going into the hospital sick with COVID 
that's lights out. That will demoralize everybody, and and we're going to have to figure out something else. So I, I just feel that once again the that not only are the states being set up to fail, but a lot of the school systems in places where COVID-19 is still raging are being set up to fail as well. I mean, you know, this idea that we're going to do social distancing with a bunch of little kids. I mean, what are little kids? In, I have, I'm a parent of now my four kids are adults, but, you know, I know what little kids in school do. They, you know, they, they hug each other. They, they, uh, you know, they cry. They need to be comforted by their teacher. They throw up. They have accidents. <laughs> this is what kids do. They spread and lies. They, the idea that we're going to have strict <laughs> social distancing, you know, you know, we're setting up the teachers to fail. It's unfair. When we're looking at the dashboards that the cities provide with the number of cases and the number of hospitalizations, et cetera, What's a guy like you look at when you're looking at those dashboards? What's the real statistic that's the most indicative and useful on those dashboards for us? So what I, I don't look at any one particular trend. I try to piece it together by looking at three or four trends. So one, I look at the rise in the number of cases, knowing that uh, either way that there's some artifact with testing, whether it's under-testing or over-testing. The next thing I look for is uh, whether it's paralleled by a rise in the number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions. And then on that basis, I'll also look at some of the predictive models. So every morning I'm looking at uh, the number of cases in Harris County and Houston, and uh, Houston Chronicles got got a lot of good information on their website, then I'll look go to the TMC website and see the Texas Medical Center website, see how that's being paralleled, and I'll go to Texas DSHS and Harris County uh, sites, and then I'll go to the models, uh, particularly the models coming out of the University of Pennsylvania that update them every week. And, and between all of those things, you get a pretty clear picture of what's happening, and I can tell you despite what we heard at the White House Coronavirus Task Force uh, that used the word encouraging, there's nothing encouraging here. This is this is terrible news. Are we still under-testing in Texas? Yes, and but, but that's not even the biggest problem right now um, because, you know, when you have that kind of level of acceleration, I don't really see how it's feasible to do even contact tracing. I mean, contact tracing is the kind of thing you do when you have handfuls of cases and you can get your arms around it. I mean, you could do, when we had the four measles cases in Harris County last year, you could do contact tracing. And by the way, it was a huge amount of staff time to do those four cases. But when you have this level of cases and acceleration, you can't even come close to doing uh, contact tracing. And again, this is why you need uh, federal high guidance and help. Um, you, you, for instance, there should be a national number that people recognize when the contact tracers are calling. I don't know about you, but when I see a number I don't recognize, I just assume it's spam and I, mm-hmm. I don't even answer it. So you, even as even stupid, silly things like that are are not being handled properly. But when somebody like you says contact tracing and even containment are difficult at this point, and the other side of the coin is essentially the White House saying, we're going to need to just live with this. They're normalizing it. This is something now 
that's just going to be here. Those are conflicting messages, but also the idea that this is going to be around a while and we need to live with it, that's not necessarily a bad message, right? Well, but it's much worse than that, right? It's it's absence of leadership. It means that this is a White House that is unwilling to do hard work. They're, they're unwilling to do hard things. Uh, we, can, we have the ability as a nation to do exactly as I've described, to get to some level that resembles containment mode by the fall and really get some semblance of life back to normal. That's what living with this means. But right now, I don't see how you live uh, anything that resembles anything close to normality in the middle of a raging COVID epidemic. And their way of handling this is unconscionable. It's, it's one, I call, I call it, they, they tell fairy tales. They say the virus is harmless, right? When we have people with sudden deaths from thrombotic events from COVID-19 or, or ignoring the fact that people are piling into hospitals uh, and into ICUs. They say there are no deaths when they know damn well the deaths are going to just a matter of time before they start to rise up uh, because that's how the death curve works with COVID-19, people on ventilators for periods of time. Or you have, you know, people like Peter Navarro going on national TV trying to trying to convince the American people this is all, a, you know, a commun- Chinese Communist Party conspiracy plot that they sent people from China into the U.S. to do this. It reminded me when I was a kid, I used to watch the old Hawaii Five-0 shows, and I think it was on CBS, and every few shows they would have a Chinese spy named Wo Fat who would come over in a little submarine. He basically used the Wo Fat uh, story to say that this is the basis of COVID-19 or blame the World Health Organization. This, This is this is not leadership. This is uh, these. This is these are just a bunch of uh, mediocre people uh, telling stories, and we've got to fix this. And, and by the way, you know, and that's unusual for me, right? I mean, I've really worked hard to only talk about the science and not um, publicly criticize uh, the White House or other elected officials. But I've had, I felt I had to depart. From that, and the reason that pushed my hand in doing this, when I saw the steep rise across our southern cities, knowing that our low-income neighborhoods are especially getting hit, and most likely, and I we don't have the, I don't have the data to support it. This is my what I think is happening uh, that it's it's people of color, African American, Hispanic, Latinx people that are piling into the hospital. So we are, as a nation, failing to protect our vulnerable. And I reached a point where I had to say, look, if, um, you know, not being political and not really, you know, getting to the root of the problem uh, is itself immoral. And, And that's why I had to sort of go out of my comfort zone to do this. And when I asked you last time what unique problems Texans face, one of those was, for instance, in Houston, a high percentage of African-American and Hispanic populations that were more susceptible to the most damaging aspects of this virus. 
Yeah, I mean, two things. One, living in low-income neighborhoods, it's harder to do that social distancing, more crowded households uh, in low-income neighborhoods. Second, people, you know, the working poor, you know, are not like you and me in the sense that we can do a lot of our work at home via Zoom and Skype and Microsoft Teams. They, you know, they have to physically be in the workplace in order to support their family. So that places them at risk. And then, then the underlying uh, comorbid conditions, uh, diabetes, uh, hypertension, renal disease. So this is, and this creates the perfect storm that are landing so many uh, people of color in our hospitals in the TMC. Here's what I can't get a handle on, and I thought I had a handle on it a couple of months ago. At what point does a timeline become clear if we're just doing what we're doing now and we're talking about, we used to talk about waves, but when we talk about the fall, when it's stacked with the flu, what can we look forward to month-wise? Because this is how we plan not just going back to school, but any kind of travel or rescuing our grandmothers in Florida. What's the whole that would be open for us to drive there, grab them, and bring them someplace safer. That's the kind of planning we can't do at this point. Has that become any clearer to you? Well, right now, in in lieu of any kind of federal strategy or plan, uh, the, the default is tragic. The default says we had 40,000 uh, a couple of weeks ago. Then we had 50,000 last week. We're going to hit 60,000. These are new cases per day this week. We'll be at 70,000 the week after that. And in a pretty short period, we're going to reach Dr. Fauci's apocalyptic prediction of 100,000 new cases a day, and it's going to continue to climb. That's how this virus works. If you don't have a strategy, uh, it's uh, that that's where we're going to go. And then we're going to have to deal on top of that with uh, a flu epidemic that we deal with every year. And that itself is pretty serious. And, and now we've also got a new situation where we're seeing a drop off in measles vaccinations among kids because parents have been skittish about bringing their infants and uh, other kids to the doctor because of all the COVID circulating. So, you know, we, who knows, we could be, looking at a triple epidemic of these three. So this is really starting to unravel society. And, and I, you know, this is going to affect the, the economy and the security of our, our country. So even if there is a change in leadership in November with the election, there's a lot of damage that could be done between now and then. And that's why I'm being so strident and, and pushing so hard on this, because I still think there's a lot we can do right now. And at this point, if we were to reach the 100,000 cases mark and people start talking again about herd immunity, that's not a real thing, right? No, I think, you know, herd immunity is still somewhat ethereal. I mean, there's a way you can calculate a theoretical herd immunity, and you do that by by the simple equation, one minus one over the reproductive number of the virus. 1 minus 1 over 2.5, that gives you 0.6, and that's where you hear that 60% number. But it's not really clear because I don't think any country has ever reached 60%. 
So there may be some other factors such as relative differences in susceptibility. So probably herd immunity occurs in the much lower rate. But let's let's say it's even uh, a third. Let's say it's 33 percent. I mean, look at the uh, population of Harris County. What is it, six million people or something along those lines? I mean, do you really want to see two million COVID cases? Uh, we're talking about tens of thousands of deaths. So herd immunity is, is not an option, but yet that's kind of what what the plan seems to be. And it's going to have terrible consequences. And it's not only deaths. We're seeing, not even because we're getting better at ICU care, you know, but what we do now compared to what we did when that epidemic first hit New York, now we put everybody on anticoagulant therapy to, pre- to prevent the blood clots from forming in the lungs and the heart and the brain, leading the stroke. We give them dexamethasone. We have remdesivir, the antiviral drug. We have uh, convalescent plasma therapy. So, no question, our ICU care has gotten better. We figured out how to place patients in such a way that we can they can breathe better. All of that's good stuff in getting them out of the ICU. But what we are creating as a consequence of this is many, many individuals with permanent injury to their lungs and their vascular system and their heart, permanent neurologic impairment, cognitive impairments. So we are going. We are producing a whole generation of disabled people. Uh, because of this virus. And, and, the, and that doesn't show on the dashboard. Are, are living low-income yeah. neighborhoods that don't have insurance. I mean, this is catastrophic. Those numbers don't show on the dashboard, the folks that are... And those don't show up on the dashboard, right? right? And so, I mean, we do have metrics for that. We use something called the Disability Adjusted Life here, the DALI. This was pioneered by people like Chris Murray at the Institute for Health Metrics. But it's a hard concept to get across. Uh, but the dallies are are really going to mount for this virus as well. How does your experience with the anti-vaxxers prepare you for the anti-maskers? Well, they're one and the same, right? I mean, right. at least here in Texas, the anti-vaccine movement uh, came out of, uh, got a lot of support from uh, the, the far right, from, from people who support the Tea Party and and they use these fake terms like health freedom or medical freedom. And now what they've done is they've added to their remit uh, campaigning against other other public health measures such as masks and and social distancing. So you know it's it's the same. It looks to me like it's the same group of players. And uh, and again, it's, it's it's all fake concepts, but but they're out there. They're very aggressive, and they do a lot of damage. Are we talking less now than we were in April in a general sense about the potential of a vaccine? We're going to have vaccines. It's, you know, as I've said a few times, creating a immune response against the spike protein with neutralizing antibodies is an old school problem in virology. And we have a vaccine that we're excited about. There will be several. The problem is in the Operation Warp Speed vaccines, I don't know that they necessarily picked the best candidates for inducing high levels of virus neutralizing antibodies. So I suspect that many of the early candidates will only be partially protective, not completely protective. So ideally, what you want in a vaccine is to do two things. One, to prevent you from getting sick and dying. And the other is to stop actual infection and 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 interrupt transmission. And I think those the first vaccines 
may help in the former, which is still very important, but it means we're still going to have to maintain a lot of public health infrastructure. These are not replacement technologies. These will be companion technologies that we use alongside masks and everything else, and that's going to require a lot of public health communications. That doesn't really happen right now. We still, Operation Warp Speed has still failed to implement any kind of communication strategy, and hopefully that will come eventually. Would those initial vaccines work essentially like a flu vaccine where they're not guaranteed to be effective in any given year, but they offer you more than nothing? Yeah, or maybe even, yeah, I think that's a reasonable analogy. It's maybe even a little better than that. In other words, they may not pre- prevent you from getting the infection and still getting flu, getting the virus and you'll still have virus replication in your upper airway, and you can still transmit the virus, but you won't get as sick. So it'll prevent potentially prevent you from going into the hospital or sudden deaths or and that sort of thing, which is a big deal. I don't want to minimize that, but, it, but we have to be realistic and recognize that those first vaccines are not going to halt transmission, and people will still be susceptible. From almost day one, you were talking about antibody therapy, the idea of the plasma, is that still showing promise? Yeah, I think so. Um, We still, they've only published so far the safety data on 5,000 individuals that came out recently. And and that's, that that was led by an initiative at the Mayo Clinic. And that's looking really good. Uh, We're doing that here. So we still don't have the actual efficacy data. But the other thing that we have now that I'm looking very closely at you know, it'll happen before the vaccine, is the version 2.0 or 1.2 of the plasma therapy, which is uh, commercially produced monoclonal antibodies or monoclonal antibody cocktails. So Regeneron has one and Lilly has one in collaboration with Epsilera. And I think those are going to help a lot, both as treatment uh, as well as as helping with exposure prophylaxis. I mean, on the one hand, all those things you mentioned have come along or been modified for use for this virus in just a couple of months. Things have moved fast on that front. On the other hand, we're very much sort of just where we were a couple of months ago, and things are still dire and looking worse. So does it confuse you as much as it confuses me as to how one thing could be moving so fast and other things, the big strategy could be moving so slow? Yeah, the science infrastructure, you know, from the NIH and our funding to our research universities and institutes, National Science Foundation, that clearly has paid off, right? It's, uh, the American people are getting the return on their investment Uh in our in our national research infrastructure, the piece that's letting us down is is the public health guidance that that we're not getting, and uh, and and to maximize use uh, of all these tools, there is a you know there pe- there's just this dug in strategy that there will be no federal uh, led initiative to protect U.S. population that it's, that this is the responsibility of the states. And, you know, it's, a, it's an approach that goes back to the 60s and 70s when the states operated in a different way. You didn't have the extremes of politics like we have now, right? We, I, mean, I mean, people 
uh, you know, across the country back then work things out. Uh, if they disagreed, they would have a beer at the Kiwanis Club or Rotary Club or or the Lions Club or B'nai Brith and and or they'd go bowling together and we don't do that anymore and everything is so hyped up and polarized and and, and volatile that that concept of leaving things to the states just doesn't work anymore. It's they're they've become too ideological uh and 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 too often buffeted by the extremes in both the right and the left. And this is where we need, and, you know, the states now for something like this need adult supervision. They need to have a strong federal government out in front taking the lead. And and this administration won't do it. And CDC won't do it. And, you know, you know, when this is all over, we'll have to really do a deep analysis on how to fix that. But for now, it's it's killing our country, literally. I mean, we need now... Uh, real leadership to to make this happen. Are you talking to the governor anymore? I mean, initially you were. No, um, I've been uh, speaking to the mayor and the county judge and 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 their people. I, I haven't had uh, much in the way of interaction with uh, with Austin. Is the answer short term again? If there's no federal strategy. The answer in Texas, uh, in these major cities, is a shutdown again. It may be, and it may be. I don't. What I don't know, and again, this is why we need, you know, the federal guidance. We need to, to look at the models and say, you know, it's great that you uh, have the mandatory masks. Now it's great you shut down the bars. This is going to be the impact, uh, and I don't know. Is that five percent? Is it? 50% reduction? Is it, are we 90% of the way there? That's the whole problem. We're shooting blind. We don't have that kind of guidance to know if what we're doing is even theoretically going to be effective. It may be, but, you know, again, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're proceeding, uh, with, with blind, we're, we're, we're blinded. We don't have that, that kind of knowledge. And, and so what we do, and the problem is if you only look at the curves and the trends, there's a lag. So if it's not going to work, uh, you won't really know that for a couple of weeks. And by then it's, it's too late. That's how this virus works. So it's not like you make a change and you see an immediate public health effect, either positive or negative. Uh, there's always a delay, and that, that's what makes it hard, and that's why you need models to or roadmaps to follow, and, and we're just not getting that. But considering we're not getting those, and I'm not trying to shoehorn you into picking a timeline, but isn't there just a limited couple of weeks here before school comes back, if school's going to be this trigger point as well, to establish whatever approach is going to potentially save us, it looks like that window is closing. Well, what it means is, let's say, let's say somebody actually listened to me, and, <laughs> and the <laughs> likelihood is, is pretty small. Okay, you say, Dr. Hotez, okay, here's your strategy. We're going to do as you say. Every state, we're going to bring down to close to containment mode. It's going to be different for different states for Texas. It's going to be a six-week strategy to do that, um, and and I don't know this. I'm just making that number up. 
So what do you do? Well, you you say, okay, but if, if that means we have to delay the start of the school year by a few weeks, but no, we can have a good school year and the students can feel safe and the teachers safe and the parents safe, that's worth it. Uh, and, and that's the kind of thing we need to look at. So, you know, don't be necessarily bound by that, whatever that date is, is it August 24th, something like that, later in August, uh, but to say, this is what we're going to do to and alter our timeline to open up our school safely. I think that's very doable. Understanding that you're working around a hospital that's, at this point, a pretty depressing place, is there anything you're hopeful about? Well, yeah, I'm hopeful about a lot of things. I'm, you know, we, you know, we're accelerating our vaccine, and and that we're looking at scale up now in India for that. I'm really excited about that. Uh, we, uh, you know, vaccinate, you know, as a global health vaccine, talking to, you know, other nations uh, about this, so that's exciting. Also, you know, other scientists at Baylor and and across the Texas Medical Center are looking at innovative strategies to scale up diagnostic testing and coming up with new diagnostic approaches. So the biomedical science uh, gives me a lot of encouragement. Uh, I'm also encouraged by, you know, the extraordinary heroism of our Texas Medical Center docs and our physicians, our nurses, our, our techs. You know, this is hard work, you know, I mean, it's exhausting because, you know, practically speaking, what it means is you have to don and doff PPE, the personal protective equipment, multiple times a day. It's exhausting. And, you know, taking care of such sick patients, that's hard. And you know, the fact that they're sticking with it, I mean, you know, we, you know, these are heroes in our Texas Medical Center. So I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by the leadership that I see here in Houston and Harris County, you know, the mayor and the county county judge and the and the and the council members and you know what I see in, in the city, you know, you know, straightforward, pragmatic, uh, non ideological leadership just trying to figure things out and do what's best for the people of Houston and the commitment to uh, low-income neighborhoods, and I suspect similar things are going on in San Antonio and, and, and the other cities in Austin. So, and and I think you know, it's even at the state level, you know, they 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 clearly get it. They're they're doing the best they can right now for the people of Houston. So I, you know, I feel good about Texas, but uh, I, I'm just very as I. We started out this interview very frustrated by the lack of federal guidance. You know, if they told us we were going to be on our own from the beginning, uh, we could have done things differently. You know, if we had known that we were going to have to operate like the Republic of Texas from the, uh, I don't know, the 1830s, we could have dealt with that. But that's not the way it worked. You know, we were led to believe that there was something called the United States of America and a federal government. Uh, and and trusted our federal government, and we've been let down. The next step past frustration is outright radicalization. You're not there yet, right? 
Well, you know, I mean, radical Zen. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a professor at a medical school. My my conventional weapons are harshly worded uh, uh, commentary in the New England Journal of Medicine. <laughs> my, although, although CNN and MSNBC and even Fox News have given me some tactical nuclear weapons, but um, but you know, there's there's not too much you know that that we can really do in terms of radicalization. But you've got to. But we do need to figure out how we can bend the federal government to get to get them to do something substantive. I don't, I, otherwise, the and and again, I don't think it's we can just wait to the the fall election. I think there's too much damage that can be done. We have to figure out a strategy now. All right. Thank you. You can follow Dr. Hotez on Twitter at Peter Hotez. You can also read more about Dr. Hotez and his search for a coronavirus vaccine in the May issue of Texas Monthly. Our current issue on newsstands now focuses on the future of energy. At TexasMonthly.com, we've lifted the paywall entirely. You can roam around TexasMonthly.com and enjoy everything from our pandemic coverage to our deep archive in its entirety absolutely free until the end of the year. And we'd love it if you consider subscribing to our show, leaving a comment or rating us wherever you found us, and maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next time. <laughs>